Welcome to Mike's Notes Super Bowl edition in honor of the New England Patriots playing the Atlanta Falcons in the upcoming Super Bowl. I wanted to take a podcast episode to finish sharing some of my thoughts about Bill Belichick. The week before the Super Bowl on my blog, thewaiterspad.com, I shared all of my notes, all the things I learned about how Bill Belichick is a good leader. And this podcast episode is going to be the third, fourth, and fifth points from that blog series. Points one and two we've actually touched on on other podcasts. Part of what makes Bill Belichick a good leader is that he uses inversion. That means he turns the problem around. Belichick started out coaching the offense, which wasn't what he had planned to coach. It wasn't what he thought he would coach. It wasn't what he was good at coaching. But in coaching the offense, he learned to think better about the defense and vice versa. He uh, tells David Halberstam in his book, The Education of a Coach, that he was jogging around the New uh, New York Giants practice facility one time, and he and Ernie Adams, his uh, assistant, are running laps. And They're talking to each other, and they're just amazed that some coaches get by without knowing the offense or without knowing the defense and without knowing both. There's there's so much value to be had to be knowing how to uh, solve problems, but also how to not solve problems. And that's the idea of thinking forward and backwards about a problem. It's the idea that sometimes it's really helpful to eliminate things as part of the solution than find the solution. The second point we've touched on is the value of pattern recognition. On the blog, thewaiterspad.com, I write that pattern recognition is like a superpower because it saves you time and money and energy and effort. And pattern recognition is really valuable because you can say, oh, I've seen this before. I know how to solve this problem. And Belichick and his assistant, Ernie Adams, both have a deep knowledge of the history of the game and because they know how things have been done before and they be because they know that such and such led to so and so and this is how it was resolved in the past they can use that information in the future so in this episode we're going to look at the next three points top-down support arguing well and how to seek counterfactuals ready one Top-down support. Even the best strategies fail in the wrong environments. Company politicking, promotions, or precedents can't get in the way. Only the truth matters. And finding that truth, the pursuit of that truth, starts at the top. If your boss fails to listen to you, discussion is a wasted effort. Belichick listens to his assistant Ernie Adams. This is what David Halberstam writes. Quote, He was one of the very few men that Bill Belichick liked to test his own view of the game against, trusting completely Adams' truly original mind and encyclopedic knowledge of the game. If they differed in a strategy, if they came out on different sides, which happened rarely, then Belichick took Adams' dissent seriously. He might not ultimately adapt to Adams' view, but he would always weigh it carefully. It wasn't only Ernie Adams that that had Bill Belichick's ear. Wide receiver coach Chad O'Shea said, He wants you to disagree. He respects that. He listens. Former assistant Scott Pioli said, This is why Bill is so different than so many people. When he's asking those questions, you know that every fiber in his body is about winning and doing what is best for the team with no personal or selfish motives. Even the players saw this. Roosevelt Colvin said, 
We'd say, why don't we just go out on our base stuff and beat them that way? And then Colvin recalls Belichick saying, okay. So Bill Belichick has created this environment where it's okay for people lower in the hierarchy, for the low man on the totem pole, to bring an idea and for him to at least listen to it. This top-down support held when the rules flipped. Belichick's boss, Robert Kraft, listened to and supported him. Michael Holley writes in Patriot Reign that Kraft knew he could talk to Belichick without any charges of being a meddlesome owner. This wasn't always the case for Belichick. His first job as a head coach was under owner Art Modell, and he didn't really know what was going on. Modell would ask the players if Belichick was treating them well and Bill didn't like this. He also offered $10,000 to anyone who could tell him what Ernie Adams did. Bob Kraft is different. In 2001, Belichick's first draft with the team, he prepared to tell Kraft about why he was choosing certain players, and Kraft said, Bill, I just want you to do what you think is right. That was a different kind of relationship and different kind of situation for Bill, and it led to or it was a contributing factor to the success of the New England Patriots. Top-down support can be really helpful. Gene Kranz was one of the assistant flight directors during the early days of NASA, and Kranz writes in his book Failure to Launch that they were making things up as they went along a lot of the time, and they were really well-trained people, and the pilots that they had flying the missions were top-notch, but a lot of the systems and processes weren't defined. Kranz was writing things down during one mission and then using those things as a model during the next mission. When the Apollo 11 lunar mission was about to begin its translunar injection, that, that means that its trip to the moon, the head of flight operations, Chris Kraft, told flight director Gerald Griffin, Young man, we don't have to go to the moon today. It's your call. This mattered, wrote Kranz, because it removed all political pressure from the decision. Griffin knew all he had to do was make the right technical call. This spirit at NASA manifested itself again during the Apollo 13 disaster. Kranz writes, With a team working in this fashion, not concerned with voicing their opinion freely, and without worrying about hurting anyone's feelings, we save time. That is, they got to the facts quickly. They were in pursuit of the truth. Culture like this can't be manufactured. Peter Thiel wrote, No company has a culture. Every company is a culture. You are what you do. NASA had the right kind of top-down support to make good choices because even though there was a lot of pressure to act and there was a lot of pressure to do something new, each boss focused on only doing what was right, not what was popular. Another demonstration of this comes from how Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz run their venture capital firm, A16Z. Regarded as one of the better firms in the business, part of the reason A16Z succeeds is top-down support. In an interview with Tim Ferriss, Andreessen explained that anyone in the company can bring a deal to the table, but nothing gets an automatic green light. We'll create a red team, a countervailing force of some sets of people, Andreessen said, to stress test the thinking. That's good, but not enough. Andreessen knows that because he's the boss, he's the A in A16Z, people might support him just because of that. It's the same situation at NASA and at the Patriots. Employees can't value pleasing the boss more than finding facts if an organization is going to survive and thrive. There's a solution to this, says Andreessen. Ben and I do this to each other. Whenever he brings in a deal, I just beat the shit out of it. I may think it's the best deal I've ever heard, and I'll just trash the crap out of it and try to get everybody else to pile on. 
Belichick supported disagreement from Adams and the other coaches and created an environment where people are expected to express ideas that lead to wins. NASA flight directors supported their engineers by creating an environment where the most important thing was safety. The venture capital firm A16Z supports an environment where no one feels pressure from the boss because the bosses take opposite sides. In each case, the leader sets the tone for hearing the truth. Once this culture exists, it's time to argue well. 2. To argue well is to debate but remain friends. It's to criticize ideas and not people. It's to stress test ideas and the humility to know that no single person is smart enough to figure out everything on their own. This is true for Bill Belichick with the New England Patriots, but not so much when Belichick was with the New York Giants. When Belichick was with the Giants, the head coach at the time was Bill Parcells, and their relationship was testy. Although they had uh, some time and success together, it wasn't a great relationship. David Halberstam writes, The Bills, they were called, and those on the outside presumed they were good friends, which they were not. Part of the reason for this relationship was the kind of culture that Parcells created. We just talked about how top-down support is important, especially once we get to arguing well, and Parcells didn't create this. Here's Halberstam again. He was volatile and wore his emotions close to the surface. He found that it worked for him, that he could use his emotions as an instrument of coaching. He had a sharp, sardonic wit, and a very considerable skill with words. He could taunt a player, sometimes with cruel humor, and in the one way coach to player relationship, the player dared not answer back. Even his very best players and his assistant coaches feared his tongue. He knew the game and had a very good feel for the game and for the mood of his team. He was never an X's and O's man like his junior partner. So here we have Bill Parcells leading in a certain style. And when you choose to lead in one style, it precludes you from leading in another style. Notice what Halberstam writes, that the players and the coaches wouldn't answer back to him because of his sardonic wit. He created an environment where discussion and ideas could not flow that easily. There was friction to people bringing up things that may be the truth, things that may lead to the truth. Belichick chose a different path. This is Halberstam again. What did fit his personality was the sum of his knowledge, being the best prepared coach on the field. Players would do what he asked not because he was their pal, but because he could help them win, and they came to believe in his abilities. How do you be the best prepared to win? By being the best informed. And that means arguing well in pursuit of the truth. Writer Michael Holley spent years with Belichick's Patriots team and noted, Belichick has no problem listening to any counter-argument, provided that it can be supported with some type of evidence. In fact, said Scott Pioli, arguing well is a necessity of working with Belichick. It's so important that part of the evaluation of you is going to be whether or not you have an opinion. Why is it important to argue well? Here's Belichick in his very own words. Sometimes somebody can get going and then everybody follows that line of thinking, that process, and then everybody agrees. It's better when we just analyze independently and all agree or work it out ourselves. It's more valuable to come up with your own ideas and then defend them. That's what it means to argue well. Good arguments sharpen the point. They remove the extraneous.
Gene Wilder saw this during a meeting with Mel Brooks about young Frankenstein. Wilder wanted something in the script and Brooks didn't, and they argued back and forth. Then Wilder got upset. This is what he recalled uh, during an NPR interview. Well, my temperature rose, and after 20 minutes or so of arguing, my color went from red to, I think, blue or purple. I started screaming, and then all of a sudden he said, Okay, it's in. And I said, Well, why did you put me through this? And he said, I wasn't sure if it was right. And I thought, if you didn't argue for it, then it was wrong. And if you did, it was right. So you convinced me. That's what good arguments do. They figure out if someone believes in an idea. Arguments trim the fat. Arguments sculpt the rock. Engineers tend to do this really well. When Andy Grove's company, Intel, was facing major pressure on its memory chip business, Grove thought they had to pivot to something else. The question was, what? Grove writes that they figured it out by ferociously arguing with one another while remaining friends. Intel had to do this as fast as possible. Here's Grove again. The most important tool in identifying a particular development as a strategic inflection point is a broad and intensive debate. It's powerful that Grove, the top person in his organization, suggested this. Arguing well requires top-down support. Grove understood that he didn't know everything. In his book, he actually acknowledges that his understanding was formed by the past, which by definition is how things used to be. He knew that things changed, and he had to figure out if the idea born in the past could survive in the present. Another engineer who believed in good arguments was Wilbur Wright. This is what David McCullough writes in his book, The Wright Brothers. Wilbur was always ready to oppose an idea expressed by anybody, ready to jump into an argument with both sleeves rolled up. A good scrap, thought Wilbur, brought out new ways of looking at things. It helped round the corners. Another example of arguing well is Walt Disney. This is what Disney said. We voice our opinions and sometimes have good old-fashioned scraps, but in the end, things get ironed out and we have something we're proud of. If we look at each of the people we've referenced, look at each of the things that they were trying to do, we see a pattern. Each is trying to break ground on a new area and needs input from others to figure out how to do it well. Disney was creating the field of animated movies. The Wright brothers were creating the field of aviation. Grove was creating Intel's microprocessor business. Brooks and Wilder were creating a new kind of comedy. And Belichick was creating a new kind of football team. If you're trying to do something that's never been done before, good arguments are part of that. Another part is counterfactuals. 3. Successful organizations will also weigh the counterfactuals, the alternative histories and possible outcomes that could have but did not occur. These are the fork in the road moments, and good organizations and leaders and participants will think what else could have happened here. As we've looked at in previous blog posts and podcasts, everything is a combination of some skill and some luck. And counterfactuals get us to the point of determining what was skill and what was luck and what's repeatable and what isn't. It gets at the idea of what can we think will revert to the mean and what do we think will not revert to the mean because it's heavily reliant on skill draws from the jar. Belichick as you may have guessed, knows this. In the 2016 AFC Championship game, Belichick went for it twice on fourth down. There was a fourth and one and a fourth and six, when he could have kicked field goals from the Denver 16 and 14-yard lines. The Patriots lost that game by two points. Superficially, it seems like kicking field goals would have won the game. 
But if his team had made a field goal either part of the game, it would have set the game down a different path of outcomes. During the post-game press conference, Belichick was asked why go for it twice on fourth down, and he gave a typical Belichick answer, because of the score and situation of the game. The idea of considering the range of outcomes happened years earlier during the regular season, too. Here's what Belichick said about a loss to the Kansas City Chiefs. I really felt good about the team, even though we'd gotten smashed. I felt something about the team that night in the second half that I really thought we could build on. Anyone that wanted to cash it in could have cashed it in. We weren't going to win. We were behind. We were on the road. Their crowd was in a frenzy. The Chiefs were playing very well, but I could see the fight. So the ends may not have been what Belichick wanted. He lost both games, the field goal game and then the game against the Chiefs. But his means were good. The fourth down plays were the right calls at that moment. And the players tried hard even though they were losing. So what Belichick has here is he has good process but not good outcomes. And he knows that if you repeat good process over and over and over again, eventually you'll get the outcomes you want. We can think of this as a series of forks in the road, or we can think of it as like a hierarchy of decisions. And we know that at the bottom, all of our outcomes will have more good outcomes if we have more good processes. And we shouldn't judge things, especially things that are depending on luck, only on the outcome. This is an idea that Belichick has instilled throughout the Patriots organization. It applies not only to in-game decisions, but analysis and the evaluation of talent, too. Scout Jason Licht said, If I said a guy was a first-round pick, and the Colts picked him, and he turned out to be a bust, Belichick and Pioli wouldn't have looked down on me. They wouldn't have said I was a bad grader, because that player in the Patriots system might have been successful. A player could be a Patriot or not, then he could be accurately scouted or not. The collection of outcomes for a player were one set if that player was a Patriot and another, an unimportant set, if they weren't. That's good counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual thinking is the ability to come up with many possible outcomes. This isn't easy. We usually mess it up by telling ourselves stories. Michael Mobison writes, Once an event occurs, all of us effortlessly and naturally create a narrative to explain that outcome. Two things can. The first is hindsight bias. We start to believe we knew what was going to happen with a greater probability than we actually did. And the second thing that happens is creeping determinism, where you start to believe that what happened is the only thing that could have happened. We have a tendency to tell a single story when there were many possible stories. When Belichick lost by two points, it's foolish to think that if he had kicked a field goal, it would have changed the game. It would have, but only in that exact moment. His team still could have lost. In the book Why Everything You Know About Soccer is Wrong, economists Chris Anderson and David Sally look at what statistics matter most for soccer teams to win. The first goal, for example, is really valuable, and there are better times to make substitutions as well. The duo also addressed our bias to favor the things we see rather than the things we don't. That is, our bias to tell good, coherent, singular stories. This is what they write. We remember and place undue significance on things that do happen while ignoring those that do not. As a result, people discount causes that are absent, things that didn't happen, and augment the importance of causes that are present, things that did happen. This influences how we think about soccer. Not only do we consider the goals that our teams score more important than the goals they do not concede, but we value the tackles they make more highly than those challenges that their preternatural 
structural sense of positioning their game intelligence mean they do not have to make. A goal is salient. A defensive stop is salient. Good positioning is not. Psychologist Robert Cialdini puts it this way, Because what is salient is deemed important and what is focal is deemed causal, a communicator who ushers audience members' attention to selected facets of a message reaps a significant persuasive advantage. To rephrase what Cialdini is writing, our tendency is to overemphasize what we pay attention to and believe post hoc ergo propter hoc, after this therefore resulting from it. Counterfactual thinking pushes the other direction. It's asking, what didn't I pay attention to, and how is that important? There are ways to think counterfactually. Ask what-if questions. Visualize the many outcomes like a decision tree or a roulette wheel. Reset variables to extremes and recompute the equations. Good counterfactual thinking will end up with a reliable process rather than cherry-picked outcomes. In that same 2016 press conference where Belichick said because of the score and situation of the game, he also said, There were a lot of big plays. Any one of them could have made the difference. That's counterfactual thinking. It's an understanding that there were a range of possible outcomes. I hope this podcast episode will help you appreciate the Super Bowl even more and maybe even understand some of the things that go on behind the scenes that we don't necessarily see. Some of the things that you can apply to your family or your team or your organization. As we noted, Bill Belichick is successful for many reasons, some of which are his good strategies. Belichick inverts the situation, asking, what would a good defense do against this offense? Former assistant Mike Lombardi said, One of the adages Belichick always subscribes to is called the inverse theory by Charlie Munger. Instead of saying, what will it take to win, you ask the question, what can we do to avoid losing? And Belichick always takes that approach. Belichick is also excellent at recognizing patterns. He has this superpower. Whether it's his own mental football vault or the one Ernie Adams cultivates, pattern recognition gets you to better answers to interesting problems faster. Belichick provides top-down support to his assistant coaches and the rest of the people on his team. The unofficial motto on Belichick's team is do your job. Josh McDaniel said, It was simple. If I was given something to do, I was expected to do it absolutely perfectly, as best I could every time I did it. And if I did those things right, I'd get something else to do. Belichick trusts his people. He gives them work to do, and if they prove that they can do it well, he gives them more good work to do. Belichick also argues well. Unlike his former boss, Bill Parcells, Belichick embraces empirical pushback from players, coaches, and the team owner. These arguments are backed by facts, and they are in pursuit of the truth. Belichick also seeks counterfactuals. There are no neat narratives to summarize a football game. It's more like app development, many small choices that lead to a final product. Getting caught up in the story means you miss the bigger picture. Thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, I have one small request. Please send me a message just letting me know that this episode has been helpful. I have received some great feedback on my blog in the last six months, and that's really been encouraging me. But I don't know if people appreciate or listen to or value the podcast. So I'm facing the choice whether or not to offer more stuff on the blog, offer more written things, which I know people enjoy, and cut back or eliminate the podcast. Or I can continue doing the podcast because it's a different form of delivering value. So please let me know if you listened this far through the podcast that this is something you would like me to continue doing. Thanks.